Well, good evening. How is everybody? Doing all right? Nice of Pastor Jason to show up. All right, well, hey, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll dive right in. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together this evening, the opportunity to study. In this study, we've been in for a number of weeks on cults, world religions, denominations. God, I hope that this study. My prayer has been that it would help us become more grounded in what we believe, become more familiar with uh, the beliefs of, of others, but not just for knowledge's sake, but for the sake of being able to share our faith and defend our faith, and um, even through knowing what we believe, growing closer to you through your word, knowing your word. Um, so God, I pray that you would help us as we uh, even continue this evening, kind of wrap this up the study up, that you would help us to be able to kind of put all the pieces together and that it would be beneficial for our lives. God, we again thank you for your love for us. I pray you'd be with the many in our church who are battling illness. Um, it seems like every time I turn around, I'm hearing someone else who's not feeling well, who's sick. I pray you'd be with them, touch them, heal them. And uh, again, we just pray you'd be with our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, for a number of weeks, we've been studying cults and world religions. And as I mentioned in the prayer, the overall goal of this study has been to help us become a little more grounded in what we believe, a little more hopefully growing in some understanding of not just what we believe, but what other people believe. Now, as we've been going through this, we have these, these cults and world religions that we spent probably 10, 12 weeks going through, and I, I think that was helpful in just kind of, if nothing else, opening our eyes to the reality. There's a lot of different belief systems out there, aren't there? A lot of different ideas, and some of the ideas that are out there, some of them are a little strange, and some of them are a little crazy, but they're out there, and been able to look at those and understand, okay, this is what they believe, here's how that compares to what we believe. That's valuable, because you're not going to go a week without seeing something on TV, seeing something or hearing something from a neighbor, a coworker, and you've got to be able, we've got to be able to recognize error. We have to be able to recognize what is wrong and what is right, what is true and what is error. We have to be able to, to identify that. And that requires not so much just knowing what everybody else believes. That's part of it. But part of that is just knowing what you believe. I, I used the example before that if you work at a bank, and some of you have worked at banks, and you may, maybe you have, you have experienced this, but I've heard of some banks that when they're teaching the tellers to be able to spot counterfeit money, that they don't give them all these hundreds of different counterfeits to study. What they do is they give them actual money to study. And the more familiar they become with actual money, the better they become at seeing and recognizing the counterfeits. That's what we're doing. We're, 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 we're talking about the counterfeits, but through this we keep reinforcing this is truth. This is truth. This is what we believe. This is what the Bible teaches. So hopefully that's been helpful. We, we, we had a number of people asked to go over some denominations. That's what we've been doing. Last week, we went over, we did an overview of the Pentecostal denominations. Uh, we went over um, briefly Presbyterians. We went over briefly, what were, what were the two other ones we went over? Do y'all remember? We went over Lutherans. Methodist was the other. Um, tonight, we're going to look at the United Church of Christ, the Church of God, Episcopal or Anglican churches, and then Baptist, and we'll kind of wrap up with that. And so if you have your outlines, let's go ahead and jump right in. Again, introduction to denominations. I, I began last week with three thoughts, and I want to begin with those again. Number one, we are not covering every belief of, of these denominations. Um, another comment I made was that underneath the umbrella, there are dozens, if not more, 
um, kind of offshoots. And so we are painting with a very broad brush, meaning your neighbor may not agree with 100% of everything about the denomination we're talking about that they, that they follow because there can be dozens and dozens of different kind of sub-denominations underneath the, the, the main ones. For instance, with Baptists, there are over 90 different Baptist sub-denominations. They all call themselves Baptist, but there are all these little intricacies and little differences about each one of them. Um, so understand that. And then the third thing I said last week, and I want to say again, is we are not attacking other denominations. That, that's not the heart. That's not the spirit of this. We, we are not entering this with a mindset that says we want to attack every other denomination. I, I want to be fair about them, and I want to be honest about them. If there are things that I believe where they are in error, I want to highlight that, but not from an attitude that's condemning and judging and attacking, but just from a standpoint of here's the information. So hopefully that's what we've been doing. If you have your outline, we're starting tonight with the United Church of Christ. United Church of Christ. Let me give you some interesting facts or just uh, some basic facts about them. Number one, they are headquartered in where? Tom? Cleveland, Ohio. He came up to me and just guessed. He said, is it Cincinnati? Nope. Is it Cleveland? Yep. He got it right. Second guess. Cleveland, Ohio. All right. Number two, they have 1.6 million members with 13,000 congregations worldwide, 5,000 of those in the U.S., 1.6 1.6 million members. Sizable, right? Pretty good size. All right, number three. Many Church of Christ churches are referred to as Christian churches. Sometimes you'll see a church and it won't have what you would recognize as a normal denominational title. For instance, you, you may see a church and it may have this title that's so-and-so Church of Christ. But you may see a sign that just says so-and-so Christian church. Many of the Church of Christ, the United Church of Christ churches, call themselves Christian um, in their title. That's what they use to refer to themselves. That's almost like they're they're another denominational title. So sometimes when you see Christian churches, more often than not, the Christian churches simply refer to, or are being used to refer to a Church of Christ church. All right, they have, yes. I do not. I do not. I don't know. I, I didn't look into it. I don't know if it's just a evenly scattered around the world or whether it's really kind of heavily central. I, I do know like with a lot of the Pentecostal denominations, they are very heavy in um, Latin America and like the Philippines, some of those Asian countries. That is very, but I'm not sure about Church of Christ. All right. They have some key doctrinal beliefs and practices. Here's the first one. A, they view baptism as necessary for salvation. However, they only baptize adults. All right, so they do not baptize infants, but they do believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. What do you all think about that? That would be one of my first questions. What about the thief on the cross? All right, that's a very good, very good observation. Um, We would say... Our, our belief system, what we believe the Bible teaches, is that if you say baptism is needed for salvation, you're adding in what? A work. You're adding in a work, the act of baptism, to help you earn your salvation. Now, there's ways that some of these other denominations rephrase that to where it doesn't sound quite so worksy. 
Um, but in my view, that's basically what you're doing. All right, B. They, they use the term the age of accountability. So they do not necessarily specify a specific age, but they say at the age of accountability. A lot of times the age 12 is what is used for the age of accountability. But there, again, you can't go in the Bible and see age of accountability is age 12. Um, all right. What letter am I on? B, they observe the Lord's Supper weekly. And this is not a right or a wrong thing. We've talked about this before. Many denominations deserve, observe the Lord's Supper weekly. Um, it seems that in early in the, the New Testament or the early church that they observed the Lord's Supper more frequently. Um, but that's not a right or a wrong thing. C, all music is a cappella. What does a cappella mean? Yes, all that was right. I didn't hear anything wrong. Without music, without instruments. Now, I have read that there are some pockets of Church of Christ churches that have started adding in simple instruments. So it's not elaborate, but some of them have started. But I think it's a very small pocket. And again, I'm not an expert on, on this, so I'm not going to speculate. All right, number five, the overall United Church of Christ is active in liberal social causes. Now, when I say the overall United Church of Christ, I state this very specifically because not all churches that would consider themselves Church of Christ churches agree with this, all right? So, I, mean, I think we all understand that there are churches who have the title Baptist that we wouldn't agree with, how they do some things, right? Maybe? There are some things, the United Church of Christ as an organization, as headquarters, make decisions and are involved in things that not all churches that claim the name Church of Christ agree with. So I want to state that, that, what, that these next four things I want to give you are true of the overall United Church of Christ denomination, but not every church agrees with this, supports this. Not every person who considers themselves to be Church of Christ agree with this. In fact, many of them stand against this, but this is the movement of the denomination as a whole. So here's the first one. A, they support abortion rights. That is something that the United Church of Christ is involved in. B, they support same-sex marriage. And C, they welcome LGBT programs. And you say, how do you know this? Well, let me give you this fourth point. The decision to approve same-sex unions was approved by over 80% of their delegates. So you say, what, what does that mean? It means that they had all of the delegates from different places around the country come together. They voted on this issue, and it was approved. 80% of the delegates voted to approve this. Um, so when I say that it's not... Every church, understand that a lot of the, the, the churches, a lot of the delegates came together and this was something they supported. So when I say that this is a movement within the United Church of Christ denomination, I don't say that aimlessly, I don't say that blindly. This is something that they have demonstrated through their voting that they want to support these things. Now, again, I want to be careful. I want to be clear. Don't go to your neighbor and say, my pastor said that you believe this, because a lot of the individual people who grew up in Church of Christ churches who maybe don't go as much as they used to or maybe they still go, with it, they don't agree with the, with, the, with the movement. They don't agree with these decisions. So don't assume that just because someone is a Church of Christ that they automatically are approving of all these things. That is not necessarily the case. So are we on the same page about that? All right. 
So that's the United Church of Christ. Let's move now to the Church of God. We covered the Church of God a little bit last week because, number one, they are one of the Pentecostal denominations. I'm drinking water because the pollen is driving me crazy. My car magically changed colors. They're one of the Pentecostal denominations. Now, again, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of Pentecostal denominations. You might remember how many we said there were last week? Didn't we say something like 176? 170. I was close. 170 different Pentecostal denominations. This is one of them, but it's one that's very familiar in the Southeast especially. All right? Number two, they were founded in 1886 in Tennessee by a former Baptist minister. Interesting, huh? He is not related to me. Thanks for asking. The headquarters, this is not on there, but the headquarters are actually in Cleveland, Tennessee. And you can actually, it's huge. Cleveland is about, how far? About 20 miles, 25 miles outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. But there in Cleveland, the, the huge headquarters of, of this branch of the Church of God. Number three, they have over 7 million members worldwide, over 1 million in the U.S. Over 7 million members worldwide with over 1 million in the U.S. So again, sizable, right? Large. Number four, they have several distinguishing beliefs and practices. They have several distinguishing beliefs and practices. A, they view foot washing as an ordinance. So they have three ordinances. What are they? Baptism, Lord's Supper, feet washing. I don't know, is it feet washing or foot washing? The washing of feet. There we go. Say like, what? So how would you all like to practice that tonight? Any volunteers? I'm not telling until after I see who volunteers. No, I'm just kidding. The, the whole idea, I, I heard one person say that they, their church decided to do foot washing for one service. And he says he has no doubt that the feet that this guy was washing were the cleanest feet he had ever seen. They were all, people who have their feet washed, what are they going to do before they have their feet washed publicly? They're going to wash their feet like never before. Um, but they view this as one of the ordinances, and they practice this regularly in the church. And there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with foot washing. There's nothing unbiblical about it. Some people would say that it's an ordinance. Other people say, well, it's not an ordinance, but it's an example that who gave? Jesus Christ. Think about this. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Think about that. Think about the humility in Christ to kneel before Judas, knowing that he was going to betray him, and still in that moment kneel down and in love and compassion wash Judas's feet. And then this example, what I believe that passage teaches us, is not necessarily the act of foot washing, but the humility that we should have towards each other, the humility that we should have towards our our. our people around us, that we should be willing to kneel and wash their feet, have that attitude of service, that attitude of humility. All right, B, many view perfection as attainable. They would say that the command in Scripture 
to be holy, the command to perfection is something that, it, that is attainable. Any of you made it? Who said pretty close? Jason? <laughs> see, we'll talk to Rebecca about that and see. They view that, it, that it's not just a goal that you should pursue, but it is something that is actually attainable. Um, now, one thing to be said about that is many within the Church of God movement, they strive for holiness and purity, and they, they strive for, for that. Um, and in many ways, they strive for that with greater urgency may, maybe than we do because they view that as a command. All right, C, many believe that Christ's atonement provides physical healing. There's a verse that says, by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. Ever heard that verse? They take that, and and many groups do, take that, not to refer to spiritual healing, is what we would say, but they say that it pertains to physical healing. By his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed physically. Uh, Again, I would say that that passage in the context is talking about a spiritual sickness, spiritual disease, spiritual wounds, spiritual um, sickness would probably be the best way of putting it. But they take that as, and again, not all, but many of them believe that they say, well, you can claim physical healing because of what Christ suffered. So many times you hear the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You heard that terminology, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The health part of that is this, by his wounds or by his stripes we are healed. That's where part of that comes in. And then if you have enough faith in what Christ has done, you can experience physical healing. Now, I want to be careful. I don't think that's what that verse means, but I do believe God can heal. I believe God can heal. Sometimes God chooses to heal through doctors, and I think other times God heals miraculously without doctors. So I'm not in any way saying that God does not heal. I don't think that verse is talking about a physical healing, but I do believe that God can heal. And so many of you have experienced healing. Many of you have had sickness and diseases that God has healed you from. And I would say glory to God for that, Um, but I do not believe that specific verse talks about physical healing. Yes, You will die, but for the believer, that could be viewed as the ultimate healing. If you follow that healing mindset all the way down, eventually it's going to run out because some, at some point there's going to be sickness and there's going to be physical death. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, but I, again... It doesn't keep people from longing for it and praying for it now. Glenda. I had a pastor that went to pray for someone. He told him in, up front, he said, when I pray for your healing, he said, uh, God may choose to heal you here or he may choose to heal you there. Yeah. And I think that she said she had a pastor one time that said when she, he would pray for someone's healing, he would tell them, God may choose to heal you here or he may choose to heal you there. So there is coming a day when we, we, we will be made new. Thankfully, right? 
where the ailments that bother us now no longer bother us. I mean, there is coming a time when the, the, the effect of sin on our physical lives is removed and we are made like Christ. And so I, I think we can long for that, but I don't think it gives us the okay to twist Scripture to teach something more than what I think the Bible is teaching. Um, number, letter D. Many view, many in the church of God, view tongues as necessary. We talked about this last week. There's some who view tongues as possible, and there's some that view tongues as necessary. There is a good group within the church of God denomination that believe tongues is the necessary proof of salvation. So if you are truly saved, you will prove that salvation through tongues. Now, again, not everyone within the church of God believe that. And so, again, we're painting with a very broad brush, and that's the reason I've worded these things that many believe or many view this. I, I want us to understand that it doesn't necessarily pertain to everyone. But there are many that do view tongues as necessary. E, they believe in believer's baptism by immersion. We would agree with that, right? Believer's baptism. We'll talk more about that when we get to the Baptist denomination here in a few minutes. Well, again, that's an overview of the Church of God. And I didn't go into a lot of detail here because we talked a lot about the overall Pentecostal denominations last week, and so I just wanted to touch on that one because we do see that one quite a bit, especially in the Southeast with it being rooted and founded in Tennessee. Third is Episcopal or Anglican churches. All right, Episcopal or Anglican churches. Have any of you ever heard, heard of these or know of, of, of these churches? Some of you do? Okay, Some, quite a few of you do. Let's go through and, and again break this down. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one than on the Church of God, but here's a couple things about it. Number one, there are over 2 million members and 7,000 congregations. There are over 2 million members and 7,000 congregations. Again, anytime you're up and you're talking about a belief system or a denomination having over a million members, 2 million members, that is sizable. All right, number two, they began as a middle way between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant tradition. So you had the Roman Catholic traditions and you had the Protestant traditions. We went into that a little bit last week, but the Anglican Episcopal churches kind of began as what they refer to as a middle way. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you a couple examples. A, like the Catholic church, they view the sacraments as essential to salvation. So they agreed with the Catholic church on many of the Catholic traditions but there were a few of the Catholic traditions that they rejected. And so B, like Protestant churches, they deny the supremacy of the Pope. If you remember when we were talking about Catholicism, we said that, the Catholic, that Catholics elevate tradition to the same level as Scripture. That they say the Pope, when he speaks on behalf of the church, is infallible. And so that is on the same level as Scripture. The, the, the Episcopals and, the, and the, the Anglicans looked at that and they said, well, we, we like some of the, what we see in the Catholic church tradition, but we disagree with this. And so they rejected that. So if you talk to someone who is well-versed in the Anglican and the Episcopal churches, there will be things that they say, yes, we get this from the Catholic church, yes, we get this from the Protestant tradition. They kind of go back and forth. They pick and choose what they want. Number three, they have been split within the Episcopal or Anglican denominations over the blessing of same-sex marriage. This is a kind of a hot-button topic with many denominations right now, and I would suggest, kind of predict, that this is going to be something that you hear more and more about in mainline denominations. Um, where do denominations that have an organized structure, an organized head, where, how do they address this? And you're going to be hearing about that more and more. Number four, the book of common prayer is what unites them. What's the problem with that? 
it replaces Scripture, basically, is what happens. The Book of Common Prayer is what unites them. That is why there is so much diversity within their churches. You say, what do you mean diversity? I'm not talking racial diversity. What I'm talking about is you can go to an Anglican Episcopal church, and you'll find people in that church that are pro-life and pro-choice. You'll go to the church and you'll find people within that church who are opposed to same-sex marriage, and then you'll find some who are open to same-sex marriage. Why? Because the, the truth of Scripture is not what unites them. The truth of Scripture is not what they rally around. What they rally around is the Book of Common Prayer. And there's teachings and prayers and, and things that you recite in this. And not all of it's bad, but again, whenever you have something that unites you other than Scripture, you're basically saying Scripture is not your final authority. All right, number five. This kind of builds on that. They view the Bible as authoritative, but church tradition and human reason must guide one's reading and understanding of Scripture. What's the problem with human reason? <laughs> it changes. It's different depending on who you're talking to. All right? I mean, what does the Bible say about humanity and human reason? What does it say about our hearts? Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are evil. What does it say about our wills? It says our wills are depraved. What does it say about our knowledge? That we need to be renewed in our minds. We go all the way through, and every time you look at our heart and the human mind, we're left with this understanding that... Man, if we're left up to ourselves, we're in trouble. That's what the Bible clearly says, that God's ways are not our ways. What does that mean? Don't rely on your own understanding because God's ways are not your ways. If you're trusting in yourself and your ability to understand, you know, there's some things in Scripture that we are never going to fully grasp. And if we are basing our reading and our understanding of Scripture on our own understanding and our own ability to to reason, what we end up doing is twisting Scripture and manipulating Scripture to line up with what we like and what we easily understand. And there are just some things that aren't like that. I mean, who here understands eternity? Who here understands the Trinity? I mean... Who, how can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man at the exact same time? I mean, there's just things we're not going to understand. I mean, how can God be completely sovereign and man have the ability to choose or reject Christ? And there, there's some things that in human comprehension contradict each other, and we have to be okay just saying, you know what? We see, these, we see this tension in Scripture. We see the Trinity taught in Scripture. We see these truths taught in Scripture. We have to be okay saying, I don't really know how it all works together, but I trust that God does. And that's where our trust in God has to be greater than our trust in our own ability to reason. All right? Um, six. They do view baptism as necessary for salvation. Again, I have a, a big problem with that because you're basically adding works into salvation. You're adding, you're adding a work into what you have to do in order to have a relationship with God. And I just don't think it's taught in Scripture. There's a couple passages um, that in English appear perhaps to, to hint at baptism being necessary. But if you look at it in the original languages, it's... It, it's, it doesn't allow it. And so it just, I think the teaching on that just completely breaks down. Yes? Correct. But there are, let me play the devil's advocate. I probably shouldn't do that. But um, there are verses that say, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So what some of them, what some who believe that would say is, it doesn't just say repent. 
for the remission of sins or for the forgiveness of sins. It says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so some, there's a couple places where it's like that. They add in, well, it says you got to be baptized in order to have the forgiveness of sins. Again, it breaks down because that's not the total teaching of Scripture, and that's not how it's seen. But I, I would agree exactly what you said. We are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, as a gift of works. Let's say mention boast, right? And so, again, um, somebody said, mentioned the thief on the cross earlier. Well, what did Jesus look over and say to the thief on the cross? Today. He didn't say, ah, Sorry. Got to be baptized first. He just said, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Um, so I, again, I think that teaching breaks down. But they're again, they view that as necessary for salvation. All right, number number D, Baptist. Now y'all may have heard of this one. All right, there are millions and millions and millions of Baptists. In fact, in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's estimated worldwide that there are about 16 million Southern Baptists. And that's just one of the 90 arms underneath the umbrella of Baptist. You could go all the way down, and again, some of the ones I'm going to, well, let me just, let's just dive in. There are many distinct groups under the Baptist umbrella. Again, one time I printed off a list, two pages of 90 different arms underneath the Baptist denomination. Here's A. There are particular and general Baptist. Historically, particular and general Baptist. Anybody know what particular and general Baptist believed? Particular Baptists were Calvinistic, and General Baptists were Arminian. Particular Baptists said, very specifically, only certain people can be saved, and General Baptists said, it's generally open, everybody can be saved. All right, B, there's Northern and Southern Baptist. Y'all knew there was a Northern Baptist convention at one point? Southern Baptist was a split off of the, um, there, there was this main Baptist denomination, Southern Baptist denomination, but it wasn't Southern. There was a Baptist denomination, and the Southern Baptists were a split. And for a time, there was Northern Baptist and Southern Baptist. C, you have Primitive Baptist, Progressive Baptist, and there's actually, and I have seen it, a Primitive Progressive Baptist. There's, yep, we're getting that one next. So, so catch this, Primitive Baptist, and they are very primitive in their worship styles. Then you have some who came out of the primitive Baptist group and said, we don't want to be primitive Baptists, we want to be progressive Baptists. And so they moved over here, so they became progressive Baptists. Then you had some who came out and said, well, we don't want to go that far, so we're going to stop here in the middle. We're primitive progressive Baptists. That is the, that's 100% true. I have seen a church in North Georgia that on their sign, prim, so-and-so primitive progressive Baptist. There, I've seen a church, maybe some of you have, Seventh-day Baptist. They would agree with everything that we agree with, except they would say that the Sabbath is still binding, and so they worship on the Sabbath. D, there is Reformed and Free Will Baptist. Again, kind of mirroring the particular and general Baptist. Free Will Baptist would believe what? Free will. Anybody can be saved, and even some of them go as far as to say you can lose your salvation. So there are some groups within the, underneath the Baptist umbrella who think that it is possible to lose your salvation. You can give it back, if you will. Then you have the Reform group, or some would refer to them as the Calvinistic group, that says not only can you not lose your salvation, God decides who's saved and who's not saved. And they go over here. And So, you, so under the Baptist umbrella, guess what you have? Everything. 
Um, now, I would say that the core, remember we talked about that dartboard, the core, and I would even say the, 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 the core and even a lot of the secondary things are, are in agreement. But again, we can go through, and I mean, there are all kinds of Baptist groups, and this just names a few of them, but I want you to understand how diverse the, the, what it is, how diverse the Baptist denomination is. So understand that with under the umbrella of the Baptist denomination, there are some differing viewpoints on things. And you can even go inside the Southern Baptist Convention and those who claim to be Southern Baptists, and there are still a lot of diverse beliefs about some of these exact same things. There are Southern Baptists who um, lean more Reformed or Calvinistic. There are Southern Baptists who are, are completely opposed to that. There are, so understand, there, there are Southern Baptists that are very, very traditional. There are Southern Baptists that are very, very contemporary. Under the umbrella of Baptists, there is a lot of diversity, if I can use that term. All right, And again, I'm not talking about racial diversity, just the way they view church. Number two, there are, there are disagreements as to the origin of the Baptist denomination. All right, there are disagreements as to the origin of the Baptist denomination. A, one group is known as Landmark Baptist. Any of you ever heard of Landmark Baptist? Okay, a couple of you. Landmark Baptists say that Baptists can be traced back to John the Baptist. Um, and they say that, that you can go throughout history and there is a line of those who held to Baptistic beliefs, and it can be traced all the way back to John the Baptist. Again, um, this view lacks historical support, and so the vast majority of Baptists reject that idea. Um, besides, John the Baptist was, what that literally means is John the Baptizer. It's what he did. What did he do? He went around baptizing people, leading people, to, heralding Christ and baptizing people. That, that was his characteristic of, of his ministry, not a belief system. Number two, there's some who say that the Baptist can be traced to the Anabaptist. And again, this view can be dismissed because the beliefs, not all the doctrinal beliefs line up. This view can be dismissed because not all the doctrinal beliefs lined up. And, and again, we're not saying that there's not any in the Baptist group that can trace some of their history back there, but the overall denomination did not come from the Anabaptists. The third belief, and this is what I believe to be accurate historically, is that Baptists came from the English Separatists in the late 1600s. The English Separatists, and the theological beliefs and the history both support this position. I know most of you don't care about this, but I'm, I'm giving it to you anyway. It's free. All right? So... Again, a very small group say we can trace Baptists all the way back to the time of Christ. And again, historically, I don't think that holds up. There's somebody who says it can be traced back to the Anabaptists. And again, the theological beliefs. There's too many differences in what we believe and what the Anabaptists believe. But then there's some who say, the vast majority of people say, we, the Baptist denomination was an offshoot of the English separatist movement. And that's where, really where um, I think the history po points to and the beliefs are the same as well. Now, let, let's close in our last little bit of time talking about the several key Baptist distinctives, all right? And there's probably more that we could say, but these are things that historically Baptists have kind of held to as this is what makes us distinct from other denominations. Here's the first one. And, and by the way, just because the Baptists hold to these doesn't mean that other denominations don't. Like this first one is the authority of Scripture. We saw last week that the Lutherans hold very strongly to the authority of Scripture. But that's something that historically Baptists have held to, the authority of Scripture. The belief that the Bible 
is, our, is the rule for faith. It is the rule for practice. It not only guides what we believe, it guides how we operate. And Baptists historically have believed in this authority of Scripture. And, and, it, and it's, it's a belief that's really rooted in 2 Timothy 3, where, well, 2 Timothy 3 and 4, where it goes through and says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so the reason we believe in the authority of Scripture is because we believe that Scripture is breathed out by God. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. A belief in the inspiration of Scripture, and that passage continues to go on, it says it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The reason we not, don't just stop with the inspiration of Scripture, but we also believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It is the, the Word of God enables us, it equips us to do what God has called us to do, not just as individuals, as a church. So we believe in the authority of Scripture because Scripture is inspired by God, because Scripture is sufficient. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word, proclaim the Word. And so we, what we take from that is that the Word of God is to be central to our lives, the Word of God is to be, to be central to our ministry. So we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and we believe in the centrality of Scripture, that God's Word is central to our lives, it is central to how we operate, it is central to our church. And so what we do then is when we believe in the authority of Scripture, that is not just a bullet point on a doctrinal statement, that is a way of life. And not just for the church as individuals. You want to know how you are to believe. You want to know how you are to live. You want to know how you are to operate. You want to know what the mind of Christ is. Guess where you go? All right, eight of you. Where do we go? We go to God's word. All right, inspiration of scripture. Sufficiency of scripture. It's the centrality of scripture. Why do we hold to all of those things? Because historically, the Bible teaches, and historically throughout the Baptist denomination, we have been built on this strong foundation at, that God's Word is our authority. God's Word is our authority. And so we stand boldly where God's Word stands. We don't waver on that. God's Word is our authority. That has been a historical position of those within the Baptist denomination. Number two, B, believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. This is huge um, for several reasons. Now understand, last week I mentioned this, that there are several denominations that baptize infants, and not all denominations who baptize infants do so in order for those infants to be saved. There are some that do, but not all that do. So one of the distinctions or distinctives of the Baptist denomination is that when you look at the different beliefs about baptism, they are, they're, they're varied. So you have some who baptize infants, and so when we say believer's baptism, what are we saying? All right, a the person being baptized has to be a believer. And so what we would say is that would eliminate infants from being baptized. Why? They've not yet made the decision to follow Christ. All right, so that's part of the believer's baptism. Um, the other thing that we would say with believer's baptism is we believe in baptism by... Immersion. So what are the different options out there? Sprinkling, pouring, dunking, right? I mean, there are some, well, when I say dunking, this, this is done with infants, all right? Have you all ever seen this? YouTube. 
I'm serious, you'll find this on YouTube. They will have a baby, and they will dunk the baby really, really quickly in the water. And so it's not, it's not what we would consider immersion in that the person is standing in the water, and they're taken down, and they're brought back up. The infant is dunked is probably not the technical term, um, but I don't remember what the technical term is. So um, we're going with dunking. Um, so there are different options out there, okay? Why do we believe in immersion? I didn't understand anything. Glenda said because that's what Scripture teaches, all right? All right, so, so the imagery of it, all right? So the, the, the baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. You are, and in, in typically what we say is, is that you are buried with Christ, you're raised to walk in newness of life. It is a, is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You don't get that picture with sprinkling or pouring. All right, that is a very clear picture. Why else? Okay. The, the examples in Scripture, that's what we see. We see... Um, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch go down into the water together. You see them baptized and they come out. Now, it doesn't say that they went down, but why would you both go down into the water? I mean, that's not, again, that's not an airtight thing. But when you start putting all this together, but the, the, the primary reason is that the word, baptize, if you look up the definition of the word, what does it mean? To dip or immerse. To dip or immerse. So the very definition of the word means to dip or immerse. And so believer's baptism is basically saying in order for someone to be saved, whenever someone comes forward here and they say, I want to be baptized, one of the first things that Pastor Jason or I do is we sit down and we talk with them and we say, have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? Tell me about that. That is the prerequisite for baptism. All right. Um, Number three, local church autonomy. What does that mean? Something like that. Each church has its own authority. There is not an overall governing body that dictates what our church can do. Now, we are a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, but the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't dictate what we do. We are self-governed. Um, so we, we decide what we believe God wants us to do, and we follow God in that. That, that. That's the autonomy of the local church, that there is no, the government can't dictate to us how we operate, the state cannot dictate to us how we operate, and there's no gov- other governing body that dictates to us how we operate. We are responsible to God, and we follow God according to his word. Number D, let, number D, letter D, separation of church and state. Historically, that has been something that Baptists have heralded or something that they have supported. Why? It's kind of connected to the previous point, but let's talk about it. Okay, we don't want the government telling us what to do. What else? Separation of church and state was established, in my opinion, to protect the church from the influence of the state, not to protect the state from the influence of the church. There's a big difference there. The, 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 the establishment of church and state and the reason why Baptists historically have supported the, the, the church and state is, is really because of the previous point, the local church autonomy. 
Um, the state does not dictate to us what we do. The state does not dictate to us how we worship. The state does not dictate to us what we believe. The state does not dictate to us what our morality should be. The state does not dictate to us how we are to operate. We have a higher authority than state, which is what? God, his word. So that is what guides us. And so the Baptists have been usually very vocal about the separation of church and state. E, preaching and evangelism. Preaching and evangelism historically has been the, a center point of the Baptist denomination. And this is tied directly to the very first truth, right? If we believe in the authority of Scripture, and we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, and we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and we believe in the centrality of Scripture, then guess what we want to do? I, we, we want you to know Scripture, we want Scripture to guide your life. How can, we, how can Scripture guide our life? So we, we focus on the preaching of Scripture, but then also in the preaching of Scripture, we discover the mission that God has given us, which the mission, the great commission, is what? Make disciples of all nations. So we have in this, see, see this belief in the authority of Scripture naturally works its way out to where preaching is going to be prominent in the church gathering. Because it is through the preaching of God's word that I believe God blesses, I believe that God equips, I believe that God um, strengthens, it's through that preaching. So historically in the Baptist denomination, there's been a strong, strong emphasis on the preaching of God's word, then also on evangelism. What, somebody define what evangelism is. Sharing the gospel. I like how you put it. Evangelism is not necessarily leading someone to faith in Christ, even though it may be that. When we are told to be committed to evangelism, what we are committed to is sharing the gospel. Paul says that some water, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. So there may be times you share the gospel and you are involved in evangelism, but you're planning. There are going to be other times when you share the gospel and you don't get to lead someone to faith in Christ, but you're watering. But there's going to be times when you share the gospel and you get to lead someone to faith in Christ. And what you should know is somebody else is planted and somebody else is watered. God is giving the increase. So understand how all of that works together. Preaching evangelism have been central. F, priesthood of the believer. What do we mean by priesthood of the believer? We're all priests? What, 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 what does that mean? What, why is this central to the Baptist belief system? We all have access to God, right? Through Christ. That, that, that's the key, through Christ. Through Christ, remember the veil being torn. Through Christ, we are invited to enter boldly into the throne room of God. If you were in the early service this morning, we, we sang about this. We sang about this in the second service. We sang about this, being, this entering the, the throne room of God. We, we don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to seek the forgiveness of sins through a priest, that Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man, Christ, who is the high priest, Christ, who is our mediator, Christ, who paid the price for our sins, has made it possible for us to enter boldly into the throne room of God. We can come and we can lay our needs at the feet of Christ. We can come and we can share our concerns and our burdens. That, that's the priesthood of the believer. It's also the belief that every believer will stand before God on his or her own beliefs. Nathan will not stand before God one day based on my beliefs. 
And you won't stand before God one day based on the beliefs of your parents or your grandparents. You will stand before God and you'll be judged based on your heart and your belief in what you personally have done with Christ. It is an individual, personal decision that you will stand before God for, right? Last one. Two offices and two ordinances. Two offices and two ordinances. Again, this is historically... um, In fact, if you look up Baptist distinctives, these are two things that will usually be included on every list. In Scripture, there are two ordinances that we believe. What are they? Ordinances for, I'm going in backwards order, I'm sorry. Two ordinances are what? Baptism and Lord's Supper or communion. All right, two offices. What are they? Pastor and deacon. Those are the two offices seen in Scripture. Now, There's other things that are distinctives for baptism. What are some other things that you would say are distinctives for for, for Baptists? Fried chicken. No, I'm just kidding. We eat a lot. There you go. Sunday school. Um, Anybody know when Sunday school was started? Sunday Sunday school was started by Robert Rakes. Anybody remember... Anybody know when? I'm sure you were just reading about this the other day, weren't you? Huh? Wrong. I'm just kidding. You guessed. 1680. 1680. And it was designed by Robert Rakes as a way, actually, to reach out into the homeless in the community who could not go to school throughout the week. And so they started school for them on Sunday. And Sunday school was actually started as an outreach ministry, as a tool of evangelism. Um, but it's developed over the years, and so um, it still should be. But it's not necessarily wrong if a church doesn't have Sunday school because, again, it was a man-instituted program that God has used in great ways and I think still is very, very valuable. In fact, there are many churches today that um, still build, even churches that are being planted today build into their structure a, a model of Sunday school for the, for the purpose of discipleship. That's the key. It's got to have a key purpose. Anything else? Sunday school is a very good one. And, and by the way, it's not just Baptists who do Sunday school. Many denominations utilize Sunday school. What are some, something, though, that some denominations utilize other than Sunday school? Small groups, home groups. Um, Something I know the, the Lutherans do, they have catechism cl- classes. Do, do they call that Sunday school? They do it with the pastor. Okay. But it is very, it, it, it's driven by a Luther shorter catechism, correct? And so, again, what is a catechism? Teaching or a doctrine. Sometimes there's prayers involved in. But basically a catechism would go something like this. What is the whole duty of man? And then there would be an answer. What would, what would be an answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, for instance. All right? So many of the catechisms, they are structured in question and answers designed to do what? Well, I mean, John, what's a, what's a catechism designed to do? Yeah, so it's very teaching-oriented. But as a result, guess what happens to children, and and not just children, but adults as well, who go through and are taught a a lot of these catechisms? You learn your beliefs.
So, y'all hear that? It was designed, it, it would begin with the children and the pastors, but then it was also designed for the children to take home and do with their parents. It was designed by Martin Luther to be a time of teaching that took place in the home. All right? So, what, what do we learn from that? So, we may not have a catechism, but what are some lessons we can learn from that? It's important to teach our children. What else? Yeah. Yep, very, quoting that, that proverb. I think it's another truth that we've got to keep in mind here. It's not the church's job to raise your children, right? The church supports, the church supports, but it's the parents' responsibility. I think Martin Luther understood that. I think that's what he was doing is let, let's get the truth into the homes and let the homes teach. Um, again, a lot more we could go over, but here, here's, the, here's the key takeaways with this. I mentioned this at the very beginning, and um, I, I want to kind of summarize all of this. When we started the study on, on world religions, cults and world religions, I said that we must know why we believe what we believe. It's not just enough to be able to recite what you believe. You have to be able to support it. And hopefully as we've gone through this, you've understood and you've learned a little bit more about why we believe what we believe and why it matters. The teachings on this introduction to denominations, these eight denominations we've gone through, I believe, okay, this is my personal belief, I believe the, the Baptist is closest in line to what the Bible teaches. That's the reason I'm a pastor in the Baptist church. That's, that's what I believe. But at the same time, I do not look at everyone in other denominations and, and think that they are wrong on everything. And I think it would be unwise to look at people in other denominations and say, you know what, if you're not Baptist, you're not going to heaven. Right? That's foolish. Right? Come on, a little more, a little more involved. That's foolish, right? So we can have our beliefs, and in the essential elements of those beliefs, the doctrine of Christ, salvation, who God is, who Christ is, we stand boldly on that. And if people reject those beliefs, then they're not part of biblical Christianity. But we also understand there is room for some differing opinions on some peripheral issues, and we give latitude with those things for people have differing opinions, and we do so with the same grace that God has shown us. Right? You are like, I just want to go eat. Just, just, just be quiet. Um, Hopefully, though, this study has helped, and again, um, many of the resources I've recommended, I think we have most of these recorded, you can get those online, but I think uh, also the resources I've recommended I think will be helpful for you, all right? With that in mind, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for your word which guides us. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us. God, I pray you'd help us to interact with other people with that same grace, that same um, attitude. God, there's nothing wrong with us having our beliefs. There's nothing wrong, especially in those core doctrinal beliefs of being bold and vocal about those. But God, help us also to understand that on some issues, there is room for differing opinions. And so we interact with people who hold those different opinions with grace and humility, understanding that we don't know it all. We do not have all the answers. But God, that reality also drives us to your word. God, I pray you'd help us all to build our lives on the authority of Scripture. I pray that our belief in the inspiration of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the centrality of Scripture would guide our lives, would guide our church, would guide uh, our families, that we would really truly say, whenever we're trying to determine anything, what does God's Word say? 
Let's let that guide us. And I pray that that would be the attitude that we all have no matter what we are dealing with in our lives. We love you. We thank you for our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.